Folks, I'm pleased to announce that our next audio documentary will be going live in just a few weeks. On Monday, April 25th, we'll be releasing a three-part audio documentary on the rise, fall, and return of Tony Davis, one of the most legendary wrestlers to ever come out of Illinois. I can't tell you how big of an icon Tony Davis is within the state of Illinois. And his story, folks, is absolutely amazing. It's inspiring. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Even if you're not from Illinois, I promise you, you're going to enjoy this series. It's called Escape from Inglewood. It's a three-part series that goes live Monday, April 25th. Now let's get to this episode. When you take away food and water from anybody, are they in survival or are they playing a game? They're in survival. So wrestling is a sport of survival. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. This episode's brought to you by Spartan Combat. Go to SpartanCombat.com to shop Yanni D merchandise, your 2022 NCAA champ. Folks, this episode is with a UFC legend, Dom Cruz, Dom the Dominator. Dominic's a former UFC world champ. He once went undefeated for over a decade and has been in the pound-for-pound rankings most of his career. Dom's an awesome guy, a high school wrestler out of Tucson, Arizona, a huge advocate for wrestling, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Fan of the week goes to our friend Jacob Pauly, a real estate mogul out of uh, out of the Quad City area, one of my favorite people I've recently met. Thank you so much for the Apple Podcast review, Jacob. Greatly appreciated. And folks, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and review. It helps bubble up this show to wrestling fans just like you. And without further ado, let's give it up for Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thanks. Absolutely. I know we were just talking about the NCAAs. I mean, you've been at a lot of big events. You were there this year, man. Give us your thoughts on on Detroit and just that whole experience. Well, it was it was cool to see, you know, wrestling. I, I always look at things from another perspective. So when I was there, I can't think of any reason I've ever been to Detroit or any reason I would ever want to go, if I'm being honest. And then you put the NCAAs there and it becomes a uh, like a heartbeat of a city all of a sudden. It's full of life, full of energy, full of toughness and tenacity and whatever it takes all in one area. I mean, you're just seeing wrestlers and wrestler parents everywhere. So 
it was cool to see wrestling bring life to something else again. You know, I mean, you, how come uh, the NBA doesn't come to Detroit too often? How come you don't got the, you don't got the, um, you know, any of the pro football games coming too often. You don't got a lot of the baseball games coming too often. You know, there's not a lot of influx of sports that are coming there. Um, and I love that wrestling chose to, you know, give something to the city essentially by doing that. I feel, I feel that's what it felt like to me. Yeah. You, it, like the city was pretty, uh, pretty empty. And so everyone you saw was like, just kind of going on the schedule of the tournaments, like wake up a little late, yeah. you know, then in between hit up a couple establishments and, and uh, stumble back into the arena. So it was like, really like a takeover of the city, yeah. which was pretty cool. And, you know, anyone who's followed your career knows you're a big wrestling fan, you know, from Tucson got started in seventh grade. How did you go from coaching wrestling as an 18 year old to getting into boxing? That's what's so crazy about wrestling and and this sport. Um, When I was coaching wrestling in high school, uh, well, coaching high school wrestling, I should say, I had just graduated and I was also going to college and um, I couldn't wrestle on the Pima College wrestling team because, you know, two practices a day uh, and I had to pay for my own school. So I I had to work instead of go to practice. So I was like, ah, crap. Well, it looks like being a student athlete is out of the excuse me, out of the mix. So I created my own way to do it. And I started coaching high school wrestling. Now these kids are all my age. So they're 19, maybe some of them are even a year older than me. You know, I'm 18, 19. We're right there at the same age. Um, They're just a year behind me. And so I would just pretty much go wrestle live with them. And I became, you know, you become friends with them. They're around your age, maybe a year under, and then you wrestle with them. They become your friends. And one of those guys invited me to a gym that he had been trying kickboxing at. And he wanted me to go with him as a partner. And when I went, he encouraged me to go. I said, I'd never thrown a punch in my life. I only wrestled. And he's like, oh, you'll love it. Just try it. And I went. And of course, I really liked it. And then I started going back without him. And then I got my own membership. And then I started paying my own gym membership by cleaning the bags and cleaning the bathrooms and mopping the mats. And then I started paying my membership by teaching and then it goes a year later, I'm sparring and kickboxing and then I'm fighting at 19. And it just kind of wow. progressively, when I started adding the hands to the, to the wrestling, one uh, mixed martial arts fighter came in by the name of Matt Verhalen and his wife. And they came in because he had a fight coming up and they used me to spar and I did pretty good. And then they started bringing me to the events with them. Got it. And so how long after that was, was the situation where you were you first got into, introduced to your coach and you were fighting like on a replacement fight and your coach of this day says it was one of the toughest fights you've ever had. Um, 2006, I believe it was. Yeah. Well, that was tough because I didn't know what to expect and I had, and nobody really knew what to expect at this time. What people don't know about fighting is it was still considered highly illegal in more than 48 (laughs) states like completely illegal don't even think about it you guys are uh basically we were like a menace to society to an extent as a sport as a whole so imagine being dana white and all them at that time Mm -hmm. everybody's everybody's praising them now but how about them when we were all the laughing stock of the sports world along with him for trying it like it's pretty crazy to watch the progression for myself coming from those days to these days now where we're on ESPN and seeing how, when you go on ESPN, people just think of you different. And all it is, is TV. It Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the sport changing or me being any better 
or me being any different. It has to do with society saying, okay, it's allowed now. And it's like, this is silly. So um, it ended up working out, but, you know, in that time, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're fighting, you know, nobody knows what's going on. You just, people are missing weight. Um, I fight at 155 pounds. There was no 135 pound weight class. There was no 145 pound weight class. You showed up and you hope your opponent showed up and you fought to, you know, till, till failure. <laughs> and in that first fight, I did that. I got strangled so many different ways and I had no jujitsu training partners really, because back then you couldn't find any like a blue belt was the best you could have. And especially coming from Tucson. So I would just gather a bunch of guys in their lunch breaks and have them basically tag team me for three rounds <laughs> because they might not have had the skill set. So I'd have to make sure and get myself deathly tired with four or five guys and just have them switching on me. And then there was no way to win no matter what. So I found a way to win. I found a way to train. And uh, it wasn't technical. So when I got into somebody that was technical at that time, yeah, it didn't go very nice. But I won with pure grit and toughness. And then once I got to 9-0, and I finally found a coach. Got seven it. And to 7-0. and I got to 7-0 on my own in the region of Tucson with, like, finding people to hold pads for me, finding people to train with me, finding people to, you know, because nobody wants to hold pads for you for free. So I had no money. So you're just trying to hit the bag for six rounds and then you grab this guy and then you do some jujitsu and then you're just ad-libbing it. By the time I got to seven and oh, I took a fight in California, met my coach. And then he agreed after I won two fights in California that he would start coaching me and managing me. So that's when I fought Uriah Faber. And I kind of say that's when my career really began was like nine and oh, up till then you're kind of just trying to lay a base and understand if anybody thinks you're good enough or if you are good enough, or if you even care to do it, you're just first 10 fights are like, am I going to do this or not? Mm -hmm. And the skepticism you must've had from like friends and family back then, knowing that it wasn't like a mainstream. I mean, saying it wasn't mainstream is saying it lightly. Like you said, like UFC was kind of like a super underground back then. So for you to push through that and then kind of cobble together your own training I'm just curious, like, how were you making money and like supporting yourself back then? Or was it all kind of ad hoc? It's a good question. And this is something that to this day, fighters are dealing with. How do we make money and how do we provide for ourselves when you're making 12 and 12 at the beginning of your career? You know, wow. at the beginning of your career, that's 24 grand. If you win, that's supposed to pay. You have to fight three. You have to fight three times a year. Pre-taxes or post-taxes? Well, that's, that's gross. Oh, wow. It's not net. And you haven't paid your team yet either. Don't forget that. Or your training partners or your supplements or your food or your travel Dang. or your flights for your trap for your teammates or any of that. So long story short, like you work. I worked. I worked all week. I had three part-time jobs while I went to school, while I fought on the weekends. And, you know, early on when you're not fate, when the sport's not progressed, you can get away with that. But now you, there's no way, like if I was trying to do the workload I was doing then now I couldn't do it, but I am working as many jobs as I was then now, but the difference is it's not labor anymore. I'm not working at Lowe's stocking shelf. I'm not um, opening a gym at four 30 in the morning and I'm not delivering paint for Sean Williams and I'm not 
uh, laying bricks down uh, on a Thursday and I'm not going to school at night. And <laughs> so all these things kind of like, even though I have three jobs, I can kind of like, you know, I'm doing analyst work. I'm doing, uh, I'm leading a team. And so it's different jobs that kind of keep me in the realm of competing at the same time. So that's been a struggle to, to piece that together over the, over the life. But early on, man, everybody has to work. You, yeah. you just got to work and fight at the same time. It, it's, that's just part of it. And then when you moved to San Diego, you, that was like your kind of jumping off moment where you said you were all in. Was that a big change to leave family and friends and kind of go out to this place that you had? I know you had, were born there, but never really lived there. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, you, anybody who moves knows that you miss your family, you miss your friends. I, I moved from everybody. So I was out here by myself. I lived on my coach's floor for about two months before I was able to afford an apartment from working and, and training. And, um, it was lonely and it was dark and it was just like all the stories you hear of everybody else who lives on the floor and an air mattress. It's the same. It's kind of re repetitive. You know, I don't, everybody knows that. All right. I was, it was, I was by myself. <laughs> I went and I did it. You know, I put everything in my car and I drove it across to get like, everybody knows that story. A lot of us do it. I'm, I'm grateful that it, it panned out. It doesn't always pan out. Um, it did. And it was not easy and it was not ideal either. I mean, I had everything you could throw in the way to make this impossible and, and it's, and it, and it was possible. So anybody can do it. Um, if you have a clear intention, if your clear intention is big enough and you know, the price you're willing to pay, but you know, going into wrestling, that's why I liked it. I wanted to do this podcast because in wrestling, you got to think just to be a state champion, what kind of hell do you go through? And then you get the state championship and who cares? Nobody. Mm-hmm. So you get used to that. You get used to training and competing and sweating and bleeding and not eating and not drinking and not sleeping for you. And when you, and, and that's what wrestling teaches you. I love how you're willing to pay. Yeah. And like you said, the prices, I've heard you say this in the past. It's like the things you need to survive water and food is like, that's the price. <laughs> that's the crazy thing about wrestling that separates it from sport to a, to, to a martial art in many ways takes it from a game to life and death and survival. So when you take away food and water from anybody, are they in survival or are they playing a game? Right. They're in survival. So wrestling is a sport of survival and survival of the fittest. That's it, man. It's a, it's crazy to see how many, walks of life it applies to obviously fighting is like probably the most direct application you look at all the former wrestlers that are fighting but just through having people on this show it's business it's it's screenwriting it's everything and uh something obviously you've carried with you all the way through and one of the things i was most curious about when you came on is you have some really unique philosophies on like winning and losing and not defining you and after the dillashaw fight um one of the reporters asked you if it was like the greatest moment of your life and you said no when I realized I didn't need a belt, that was the greatest moment. How did you like come to that so early in your career? Mm, man, that's the thing that people don't want. You, you know, people are like, man, that's really wise. And that's, that was nice. Thank you for saying that. You don't know what I had to go through to even come to that though. Like to lay, I had three knee surgeries back to back while I held the title. Then after that, they stripped it and then I blew my quad out. So it took a culmination of the most catastrophic injuries that any athlete could ever have, which is three ACL reconstructive surgeries back to back on both knees 
to come to that. Right. So I wish I could just say, this is how, but you can't, you have to suffer. You have to sit by yourself alone and realize that the quality of your life is the quality of your relationships. And the fact that you're sitting here with nobody to help you prepare for your your post-knee surgery and nobody to be there when you wake up from, from surgery, other than some friend that you hired and like everybody's you, I realized quickly, I didn't have a support system. I was, I was exactly how I left on my own. And so when you start piecing those things together, you start realizing, holy cow, my life is trash without relationships. And I had focused, I put like, because I wanted to win so bad and because of wrestling and tunnel vision and all that, I, you just shut everything out. If it's not helping you win, you shut it out. Well, then all of a sudden you blow your knees out for three, three times and you realize where's all the things you shut out yeah oh crap i forgot i never thought about getting hurt and like needing all these people and needing support and needing love and needing just something Mm -hmm. besides yourself i had only needed myself up to that point so once i had that realization you start being what's missing for other people you start finding a way to support other people you start trying to, I I realized really quickly that I was the environment that had created no no thing around me. So if I wanted something around me, then I had to be the environment that supported something. So if I wanted rose bushes all around me, then I needed to be that environment. And at that point, I was a desert. Mm -hmm. You can't plant rose trees in a desert. So I had to change my environment. And I use this as a parallel of I needed to focus on what I on on shifting who I was being and my own joy, my own happiness, on what I needed in my own life to be happy without fighting. If I never ever fought again, what would I be? Who am I? What am I? Those were real questions. And not everybody has to answer those questions until they're retired or until they're laying in their hospital bed on their deathbed sometimes. Some say, poor guy, I say, lucky I had that then. Seriously, you had to think of because then the rest of your career, you have so much more appreciation and perspective for it. What a gift, right? Think about it. I'm I'm my age now and I have a perspective of somebody who's retired for 10 years. Yeah, I have that perspective. I've already retired. I already know what that looks like. I already know the mental torments I'm going to go through and I won't go through them again. I'm prepared because you know, it's not the belt that defines me. It's not my results that define me. It's not having a championship that makes me happy or joyous. It's, you know, you, and those are all just things that don't make me who I am, but they add to it, you know, and when you become those results, that's when you fall apart. It's when you see these guys who retire and they don't know what to do with their life. And they're on the internet, just trolling active athletes regularly. People who are doing that, it's because they're lost. Those poor souls, they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. So they stay riding the coattails of the active athletes. Um, and I see it all too many times in sport. And, you know, I just go to those guys and I go, oh, poor guy, go find something to be, go be there with your family, go, go create a new business that you are a six, you are a world championship and you are a world championship holder in fighting. Go create a business to be a world championship holder. Go support people like a world championship holder. Go give to somebody. Go give to your family. Like there's so many avenues we can shift that. And what do we do? We stay where we're comfortable because our whole life we've been defined by competition. 
Mm-hmm. I've had the gift of letting not having that for seven to 10 years in the middle and the prime of my career when my body should be working the best and everybody's telling me, if only you had used your prime years. Little do they know I did. Right. It was just, just not the way they saw. You were just investing in other areas. So that was like something you could because you couldn't. I mean, so how long at the peak were you like physically not able to do like a, a full sparring or a full training? Are we talking months or like years? Well, when you blow your knee out, you're out nine months minimum. Okay. I did three of those back to back. Yeah. So just put that in perspective. Think about it. Nganu uh, just went through a knee surgery. He's two weeks out three weeks out right now he's got six more months just to get back to baseline before he can even start bending his knee again because he had acl mcl so that means he's in a brace locked out for three months before you can even start bending it again when you just do acl you can start moving your leg right off the bat but mcl locks you out so now he's got to get flexion extension then build the muscle after that so that's another four months, two, three months you add on to that. So I did that. Then I re-blew that same knee again. Then I went and blew my other one right after that, after I won a fight. Um, so it just, when you do the same thing over and over like that, you just, you can't help but to, to try to get a system. By the third knee surgery, my system was down pat. I was ready to go. And that's when I fought Dillashaw. Got it. Okay. And then so, and then you had another layoff in between. And so I'm just curious, when you look back at your training now from the beginning to what you're doing now, you're riding a two-fight win streak. You know, how have you changed kind of that wrestler mentality of just grinding through it versus do you give your body more rest now or is that change for you? Yeah, I give my body more rest, but then there's a a thing you got to remember too is early in your career, every fighter, every wrestler's got to deal with being overly active in order to catapult your career and i had to do that i was having four to six fights a year early in my career and then as a title holder i'm fighting three fights a year uh sometimes multiple i had two stints where i fought three title fights in a year um there's not a lot of champions that do that most of the time it's maybe one sometimes two fights a year i was doing three and this was in the early days when it's expected because the sport's trying to grow so you've got to stay busy so my body was just put through the ringer early on as champion to build the sport, build a division. Um, when I lost the title, you know, not a lot of, there hasn't been an active champion as long as I was champion since not even close. So mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard to stay at the top. It's hard to, to win. And it comes down to, um, yeah, taking care of your body, you know, but I have the option to do that now because I'm not champion when you're champion you belong to the people, you belong to the organization and you belong to the division. None of it belongs to you. That's what you, that's what you learn once you're there, but once you're there, it's too late to learn that. So you just get it. Dude. It's, it's crazy because these moments and just getting there is so rare. And I've heard you say that the craziest thing about being a pro fighter is that even if you win and defend the belt, as soon as you get out of the cage, the next, the next thing anyone's ready to ask you is like, who are you going to fight next? Like there's no, just, kind of embracing it and taking it in it's always what's next that's that's the story of the world what's next how many of us uh this day and age are actually present doesn't exist anymore we're either in the past 
to try to keep ourselves safe in the present or we're in the future to, to not have to think about the present because we don't want what we have. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a human condition. That is survival. That's what we are. Once we accept that that's there, we don't have to choose it. I don't choose it. I stay present here. I am. And, um, I'll take one day at a time. I love that. And, uh, you know, one day at a time you're down in San Diego and one of, uh, just my favorite personalities. And I was curious to ask you about this. Do you ever get to run into the great Jocko Wilnick down there to see, uh, yeah. dude, is that guy just as impressive in real life as he is through podcasts and books and so forth? Well, you got to think like, excuse me, similar to me. Like when I talk, when I do all these podcasts and stuff, you get the, the most talkative, most alive version of me because I'm here giving something. When you run into Jocko, he's not the guy you see on these podcasts and at the on stage. He's he's just the representation of that. So he's not running around talking and hyping you up. He's just keeping to himself, being responsibility, showing you what it looks like to be it. You know, Jocko's Jocko. He'll never he'll never expect nothing from you. He'll just show up and you get what you get. And that's, you know, that's the good thing about him. He's, he's a stone cold guy that just, you know, very stoic. Yeah. I don't know if you get the most connection from him, but uh, if you want to be held accountable and a responsibility, he's your guy. He's a hard, he's a tough dude, man. It inspires a lot of people. I know you do as well. I mean, through this comeback, did you know the whole time coming through from, 2016 to when you fought Cejudo that you were going to come back or were there moments where you thought that you were you were done fighting well you know that's the that's the thing that you learn is you learn if you attach to either of those then you lose you lose right you you have you're you're screwed the minute the minute you attach to one or the other you're, you just can't because then you put stress so I wasn't attached I just kept doing one day to the next and if my body showed up then it showed up I started uh, when the lockdown happened, when COVID happened, I started gunning for that title fight because I was like, man, if they're going to lock everything down, there's a chance that all the international countries get shut down and they're not going to have a fight. And so I was like, I could take this opportunity and jump in there. It wasn't the the best opportunity for me or my body, but you don't shy away from an opportunity at a world title. You just got to take it when you got it. So Regardless of the state of the world, um, my body, my surgery, the timing, you just take what you get. And that's what I got at the moment. And I ran with it and um, didn't work out uh, exa- exactly the way I wanted, obviously. But, you know, you, it, it didn't, uh, it wasn't a loss as much as it just didn't work that time. So, yeah, yeah. kind of, what can I, what can I adjust? I made the adjustments and clearly it's showing up. <laughs> and uh two fight win streak i can't wait to see you out there next i know you haven't announced your fight but do you have any idea on, on when we might see you back in the cage dominic cruz yeah i like july june july because but but you know i'm kind of in a similar to a diaz situation like nate diaz like you look and they're going what happens is he's saying ufc you're not offering me a fight right well they're offering him fights. It's just, they're not fights that make sense for his business. They make sense for UFC's business, which this is a business, both sides. So the UFC is running their business and Nate Diaz is running his business. And they're, they're, we're working together. All of us fighters are working together with the business of the UFC. 
And those two work really well together to make good pay-per-views and good numbers. Um, so for me, it's similar because he's such a big name that guys are going to fight him and then get a title shot right after guys are going to fight me because I've been a title holder. And then they know they want to fight me because that moves them to the top five of the rankings. Well, who do I fight that moves me? There is the question. Who does Nate Diaz fight that moves him? There is the question. Nobody really, unless it's like a, a top five guy. So when you're trying to match us up, me up with somebody that's in the, that's number 10, or under me, or they're trying to match me up with somebody that's one spot above me. And then it keeps me right where I'm at. I'm fighting to fight. I'm not fighting to move towards the goal. UFC knows that. Um, that's what they're doing with Diaz. That's, that's kind of, it's a business model. So it's, it's understandable, but you got to work with it. So I'm doing what I can to, to try to get a fight that, that makes sense. Like I would love to fight Jose Aldo. I would love to fight somebody that moves me you know, one step close to the title, but because I had that title shot over COVID, they're hesitant to give another title shot because the rest of the division then whines. Right. Why does he get a shot? And then now Sean Shelby has to deal with calls from all the whiny fighters. (laughs) And that's real. That's the down to the realest part of this is it's like Sean Shelby doesn't want to give certain title shots, whether it makes sense or not, because he's got to hear the the moaning from the rest of the division called, why you give it to him? Da, da, da. It's like, Oh, what a nightmare. These guys are just oh. such crybabies. You know what I mean? They're such crybabies. So the real thing is people get title fights. People get opportunities because they work with the UFC to create them. So I'm trying to find a place that I can work with the UFC to create those positions. I'm not going to sit here and say, you should give me, I deserve, I'm this, I'm that. no, I do bring numbers. I do bring relevancy. I do bring eyes. I do bring a fight. I do bring entertainment. I bring all these things. I do bring people to watch these fights. That being said, let's work together and come up with the fight that the whole world gets to enjoy UFC. And and they will. They're, they're the best in the world and I trust them. And we've got a great, great relationship. Man, I love that perspective because I bet it's easy early on your career just to take every fight they threw at you or have the attitude like I'll fight anyone. But then like as you get older, you have to, you know, more mature in your career. You're saying no to fights and and being kind of more respectful. You don't say no. Like, so you don't say no. But what you do is you say, okay, I'll fight him. Now, where does that move me? And they go, well, it doesn't move you anywhere. And you go, so why? I'm not saying no, but can we? I'm not saying this is easy. All these fights are hard. Every one of them. I just want to move forward. So I'm not, I'll never say no to a fight. There's nobody, because I'm going to have to face every one of them. If you're the world title holder, you face everybody. But it's like, how do I do it timing wise to where we're both moving and working together and you're not just throwing me to the wolves for your, for your own business. And what I mean by that is how do I fight and move forward, not move back when I fight? You're, you want me to move back and you want to move the guys from the back to the front. I want to move. I want to stay where I'm at and move to the front. Yep. That's, it's going to always be this way in this business. So then they go, the way that, that the company goes is uses it is they'll throw something out and they'll go, he's scared. He doesn't want to. And then the other fighter goes, he's scared of me because I'm so tough and I throw <laughs> elbows and knees and I'm a bad matchup. No, <laughs> none of us are scared of anybody. We all are just doing a strategic battle just like think about a, a wrestling uh, tournament. 
and where you're placed. How important is it to get the right seat on that on that uh, on that bracket? Right. This is no different. This is seatings in a bracket. And how do I get that seat? And where am I? If I'm if I'm seated number one, why am I going to face the number two guy right off the bat? Yep. At the beginning of the tournament in the pigtail rounds. What are we doing? Like at a certain point, this I see what's happening. You don't, you just want me out of here. <laughs> Hold on a second. So it's like, okay, I'll fight this guy, I'll beat him, whatever. We move it forward because I'm not asking for easier fights. I'm asking for harder fights. I'm asking for the hardest fights on earth. I'm asking for all those. I'm asking for yawns. I'm asking for Sterlings. I'm asking for, you know, the, the top three guys so that when I fight them, not only does the world get something, the UFC gets something, the views get something, but uh, I, I add to challenging myself and facing the best guys in the world. So yeah, who they give me, we'll see. Um, uh, the whole division is there for the taking the way I see it. Just got to fight one fight at a time. Dude, it's exciting to have someone like you in there, like, like, like a Tom Brady where you know the game so well and your body's still there. So, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's rare that you see that. And, you know, all of, uh, you know, all of my buddies, all the wrestling world, we're pulling from you. As we wind down, I usually ask folks, how did wrestling change your life? And you could take it, you know, some of the biggest takeaways from wrestling, but uh, how do you look at that now? Wrestling, the, the biggest thing that it did for me was it showed me for from seventh grade until my senior year in high school what doubting yourself looks like and it is very demeaning it is very uh, it eats your soul it it kills you when you when you don't go for it to your full potential so in high school i had a lot of doubts in myself i learned about those doubts when i graduated didn't succeed the way I knew I could have it it lit a fire under me to say man no more of this um in the end there's only you know there's only two things that are a hundred percent fact it's we're going to pay taxes and we're going to be in a in a box and, and dead at the end of this thing so does anybody care uh what I've done when I'm dead in a box not not really I'm just dead so I might as well just rip it and go all the way with every ounce of my soul and not have a doubt because in the end it's it's inevitable we're gone that's just the cold hard facts so kill it until it's until the wheels fall off dude that was awesome thank you very much down thank you again for coming on the show and best of luck to you moving forward man thanks thanks for having me thank you so much for listening to wrestling changed my life this episode was brought to you by Spartan Combat. You can register now for the Spartan Nationals taking place April 8th through the 10th at SpartanCombat.com. To keep up with Wrestling Changed My Life on social media, follow us on Instagram at Wrestling Changed My Life. You can also go to WrestlingChangedMyLife.com for all past episodes. That's it, and we'll see you next time.